Well, good morning and welcome to worship. Thanks for being already in a posture and in a place of worship. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be one of the pastors here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And we say this a lot, we want to say it again. It's the middle of January, and it is no accident that you are here in this place. The God that is there, the God that cares, actually literally wants you to hear from him in his word, by his spirit, gathered amongst his people this morning. And so that's what we're going to try to our very best to continue to do. I'm going to start a little bit differently this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all fall semester and now headlong into our spring semester since we've gotten through the holidays, our Advent season. We've been looking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we started in November a very lengthy section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, that uh, really have this one massive mega theme that we've been trying to negotiate and articulate. So this morning, I want to read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll see if we can unpack it a bit, and then we'll see if we can apply it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23. Paul writes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who, is, who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should, you, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So... Whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews, or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is God's word. At long last, we come to the end of this lengthy three-chapter section in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I've sort of thought through, struggled through, prayed through, prepared through how to open this up and how to illustrate this this morning. Because it's a strange little passage as we've walked all the way through chapters 8 and 9, the first half of chapter 10. And now we land the plane, Lord willing, here at the end of chapter 10. So this, this week, as I was enduring and experiencing and sometimes enjoying the cold snap of weather that we've gotten, I had the occasion to see some birds. Now, I will tell you, I am not a bird watcher. The term apparently is ornithologist. Don't care. I don't really have much use for birds. I find some of them to be delicious. But other than that, I'm not a bird watcher. I don't have the eyesight for it. I I don't have the discretion to understand what I'm actually seeing. Biggest problem is I don't have the patience. Like even thinking about birds, I'm getting bored right now. All right. But I did observe a couple behaviors that made me think of this passage. On the one hand, there are these little sparrows or martins. I don't even really know what they are and candidly could not possibly care less. But they're little. And they're very frantic and they're very busy. 
and they move about very, very staccato little movements, and they move this little seed from here to precisely there, and then they flap and they flutter, and then they chirp at somebody else, and they do the thing like this, and they, all these little bitty, bitty things, and they just have all these little things that they're trying to get accomplished just right there, these precise little motions with extreme focus in a very tight space, and for some of you, I just described your entire Christian experience. But then there are the other kinds of birds that I also observed, like an eagle soaring majestically above whatever vista, catching a thermal off of a ridge. Okay, it probably was an eagle, more like a buzzard. Anyway, they were big, and it was probably circling over whatever died in the back of my house. Nonetheless, very large, just sort of very grandiose, very marvelous and majestic, really kind of amazing. Great heights, great distances, don't seem to accomplish a whole lot, and they're generally alone. For some of you, I just described your entire Christian experience. Both of those actually exist, and that's fine. Right up into the point, you're a sparrow that needs to be able to see the big picture or until you're an eagle or a buzzard that could really benefit from some very specific instruction. Now, remember, the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Corinthians to address some disunities, some divisions in the church that are beginning to create cracks which are bad for the body, that are bringing bad witness onto the kingdom. And so he's trying to address this. Listen, we must not let these things happen. We might have some little bird Christians. We might have some big buzzard Christians. And that's all fine, and we're always going to have that. But the problems arise when sparrow-like people who prefer absolutes try to eliminate all the subjective areas. And when eagle kind of people who prefer subjective areas try to eliminate all uh, absolutes. So all, uh, the, the sparrows try to remove all the subjective areas. The eagles try to remove all the absolutes. But they both and they do must exist. How then shall we live? Does the Bible teach us to be one way or the other? It's an ancient struggle. See, for about 2,000 years, the church and all churches have had to walk a narrow lane between two equal and opposite errors. There's the stuff of non-essentials. There's the stuff of essentials. And so what that produces is, on the one hand, the idea of legalism. We know what the Bible says, but there's a lot of stuff that the Bible doesn't cover. And so we're going to take God's list and we're going to make it longer. We're going to add a whole bunch of strictures and regulations and restrictions and all kinds of things that tell people in every conceivable context what they should do, think, and say. The, the rabbis used to love to do this for centuries. They would add extra codes about you have to stir your soup counterclockwise and you have to do thus and such. And as it turned out, the people who wrote those codes were also the most gifted at doing those things, and so they rose in social status. And that's a bad thing. It's always bad for a body of believers for a legalistic approach to be adopted. But on the other side is the idea of license. It says it doesn't matter what we do. There are no rules. We just do whatever feels good. There's no consequence. It's not a big deal. Christ has died. I'm forgiven. It's a victimless sin or issue. It's no big deal. But that is a deep, terrible error. And so, as we've said many, many times before, 
There is this gray area between legalism and license where the situation really does determine the appropriate attitude and action, the best behavior. We say this all the time, we'll say it again. It is possible for two people to do the exact same thing and for one person it be sin while for the other person it isn't. So how are we supposed to know? Well, Thankfully, we have a fiery little apostle, bow-legged boy named Paul, who wrote a very lengthy letter to the church in Corinth. And in that letter, we'll continue to look at this morning, he gives them a brilliant description of how they are to live their lives then. And that provides wisdom and it provides truth for us to live our lives now. It is a very intensely practical section. We tend to think most of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us, that the large moments are what define our Christian life and experience. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, that time in 1986, there I was at the Sandy Patty concert, and it was just so, and like, that's it. That's been the ultimate omega moment of your whole Christian experience. For the rest of you who don't know who Sandy Patty is, you're welcome. But as it turns out, the truth and the reality is that our Christian lives are most often occupied and filled with very minor moments of minutia and the mundane. There is a lot of gray area that can lull us to a walking around sleep and a mental malaise. And so our big idea for today is glorify God in the gray. Glorify God in the gray, not just in those major massive moments, when you think this is probably when God wants me to set up and pay attention. No, the kingdom has come. Remember, there are two ages, the age of of suffering and pain and sorrow and shame and death and the coming age where there will be prosperity and no scarcity and joy. Well, that age is actually broken through already. And so we get to live, experience and express that kind of joy in this age, though it's coming from a future age. It has come, it is coming both and. And so the Christian gets to admonish himself and all of those around him or her that we have the opportunity because of the gospel and the privilege and the prerogative to glorify God in the gray. Now we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about that very thing because my prayer in preparation is that all of us would walk out of here mm, still while it's morning having a different awareness that the windshield on our view to the world would be a little bit more clear and a little bit more attuned to the things that God is doing in the world, in, around, and through us. We've been starting, or we've been studying this book, 1 Corinthians, now for many, many months. We've been calling it an imperfect church and a perfect gospel. He's taken six chapters to rebuke them, beginning in chapter seven. He was addressing all of the questions that they wrote. In Paul's time in churches in Galatia and Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea and Ephesus, he was dealing with Eastern issues like mysticism and Gnosticism. But in Corinth, he's dealing with this super central issue of individual entitlement. They were Greek, they were Western. And so he's dealing with the plague of humanism, or more specifically and simply, selfishness. Now, when I say selfishness, again, I've said this for many weeks now, I don't just mean that someone thinks only about themselves, period. It's more than that. In the Bible, there is a pattern to what is righteousness and a pattern to what is wickedness. We've read this a couple times. I want to read it again. This is from Bruce Waltke. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. But the wicked, conversely, are willing to disadvantage the community to advance themselves. And so Paul says, we've got to talk about that. We've got to nail that down and get that clear. And so he starts in chapter 10. We walk back through this verse 
23. All things are lawful. Everything is, the Greek term is sumphero, permissible, acceptable, able to be brought together and presented. All things are lawful, he says, but not all things are helpful. Now, some of your translations might actually have some quotation marks around those opening phrases. That's good and that's helpful. Would not have been in the Greek, that's okay. The translators are helping us out. All things are lawful. It's possible that while Paul was with them for 18 months, that he was actually telling them that and giving them that little expression of his own, but they took it. And in his four-year absence, they apparently perverted it. So he's responding to their questions that they've written him in a letter, They said, all things are possible. Paul says, "Mm, maybe, but not all things are helpful. They're not not actually productive and they're not actually positive. He quotes it again, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. The oldest heresy in the church is, since I'm forgiven, I can do anything I want. Since I am under grace, it doesn't matter what I do. Now, most of us would probably never actually say that. Like as soon as I benedict her in a few moments, whoo, I'm glad that's now over because I can do anything I want and God has to forgive me. Now, you never say that out loud more than likely, but it's how we conduct our lives anyway. We tell ourselves silently that God's not there and that he doesn't care. But he is and he does. He absolutely is and he absolutely does. They're saying, I can do whatever I want. This was a misapplication of their salvation, massively. And so we're very, very prone to hear these kinds of things. It doesn't matter if I sin, Paul says to them. No, it does matter if you sin. Here's the thing. You are forgetting that which was shed for your salvation. When you sin, all of that faithlessness, all of that rebellion, all of that darkness and depravity and destruction and damage, the Lord God literally takes all of that and he places it on the suffering of his son on the cross. Jesus's anguish increases, particularly with our flippant attitude towards sin. And then the Holy Spirit that indwells us is grieved. He is quenched and interrupts the flow of conversation and dialogue. And we don't hear from him. And there is a darkness, there is a dimness. And then the fellowship between us and the Father is also interrupted. And we feel like he's distant or displeased or disapproving or disappointed or whatever else. And then we're not able to look one another in the eye and have conversations between the saints because there is a shame, there is a remorse, and there is this vibration of, and soon enough, we just stop coming back to church, all because we think sin's not a big deal. Sin is a massive deal. And so Paul says, listen, we want to talk about that which is lawful, that which is productive, constructive. And just to be very, very clear, when Paul says all things are lawful or permissible, no, they're not, and Paul knows this. If you read all of Paul's 13 epistles, you will see chapter and verse where he says, flee from sexual immorality. Do not be a drunkard. Do not be violent. Do not be a swindler. Do not be a cheat. Don't be a liar. Don't be a bully. All of the things, it is not permissible. It is not acceptable. It is not tolerated to do those things. What Paul says all, he doesn't always mean all. And I know that can be vexing. He means all things that are not expressly covered in the pages of Scripture. I've read this book from the table of contents to the maps. I have. There's nothing in here about disc golf. It's nothing. So is it okay for a person to play disc golf or not? 
It actually depends on the circumstances. It depends on the situation. It depends on the people present. All of those things. So all of those things are permissible. He's not talking about all things, i.e. the things he's already said are not permissible. So I'm not blaming any of you for this. I'm making eye contact with one person who has tried to use this verse to say, I, I, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. No, Paul is absolutely not condoning sin in any way, shape, or form. Verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is one of the first times that Paul drops this sentiment, but it shows up over and over again, particularly places like Philippians 2, 4, count others as more significant than yourself. But this letter, and this place is one of the first times that Paul says this, this is the ethic this is the aesthetic. This is the ambiance and the atmosphere of the people of God. Putting one another first. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That is an amazing thing. Paul says the, the flavor, the, the mist that comes off the church is to be all these people whose own good is not their project, but the good of everybody else in the room. That's my project. And the good of everybody else in the room, that's your project. Your own good is never your own project. Now, that is a transformative kind of idea. And if I may be so bold and to say so candidly, it is precisely that the rest of the world is looking for so very desperately. But quite frequently, they don't find it in the halls of our churches. And so they'll try to create it themselves, but apart from the gospel. And they're very creative and they're very crafty and they're very clever trying to create instances in which everybody is accepted and loved. And it's all just this wonderful mutual community of joy, but it's hollow because it lacks the gospel. Paul says, let none of us look to our own good, but to the good of others. This is the kind of stuff that makes a church thrive, makes a family thrive, and makes a marriage thrive. Verse 25 He's moving from eagle principles to sparrow principles. This is how he's gonna do. The, the first couple things are gonna be for the eagles. All the middle bits are for the sparrows. At the very end, we're back to the eagles. So wherever you are, you're in here somewhere, okay? Verse 25, he gets very, very specific, very precise. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Just eat the meat. Stop it already. Just eat the meat. Why is he saying this? Because the church in Corinth still had members that were from a Jewish background. And the Jews were required by their custom, by their Jewish religion, if they were going to go into the market, they had to do an investigation. They had to ask, was this meat sacrificed to Apollo? Nope. Okay. Was this meat sacrificed to Athena? Nope. Okay. Was this meat sacrificed to Zeus? Nope. Okay. Was this meat sacrificed to Poseidon? Nope. Was this meat sacrificed to... And they had to do a full-blown investigation, and they would finally find a piece of meat or they had been lied to adequately by the vendor and they would take the meat home and they would, this is the great grand irony, they would thank God for giving them meat that was not sacrificed to idols despite them taking an hour and a half to do this investigation, right? Like, thank you that I found the stuff that isn't. And so Paul says, stop it already. You are on an adventure in missing the point. Stop doing all that. Just eat the meat. Not a problem. He says there in verse 25, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, no need to launch an investigation. For, verse 26, one of Paul's favorite things to do, he quotes Psalm 24. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Why does he do that? Because Paul's clever. He's also a Jew. He never got over that. 
all pious Jews before every single meal would quote Psalm 24, for the earth is the, is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, God's made all things good. Peter had a vision in Acts chapter 10 where God let down a sheet and all of the animals in that sheet, God said, divvy it up, put some Tony Cash rays on there, you'll be fine. What? I can't, oh yes, you get three times God tells Peter, eat it, eat the hoopoe, eat the giraffe, have some hippo jerky, don't care, go for it. Eat whatever you like, don't make a big deal. But Paul says, don't try to divide the church over these kinds of things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, that's instance number one they had apparently had asked about. Then they asked a very specific option number two. If, verse 27, one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, it means you feel like going, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions. By the way, that's a great sign to have on your placemats for your kids. Eat whatever is set before you, don't ask. At our house, we said, take it or leave it, do not talk about it. And so our kids would say, take it. No, that's not how that works. Take it or leave it, don't talk about it. You, we're not gonna have a conversation about this. You eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But let's say there you are, this is very particular, very specific, because Paul's now finally going back to these little sparrow kind of situations. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? They had asked him about it, and so he's answering. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, this is apparently another believer who's at the dinner, says, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you can't eat that. That was offered to, you know, Hephaestus or Aphrodite. You, you, you can't eat that. Watch what Paul says. Then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, he's already said in the very first half of chapter 10, no, you shouldn't be going to eat at the temple. You don't get to have your men's Bible study in the temple of Aphrodite where there are 2,000 cultic prostitutes. No, you don't get to do that. What's happening here is a question of the venue versus the menu, all right? The venue, that's bad. There's gross things happening there, and this is pre-penicillin. Don't go there and eat, okay? The menu is fine. It's just meat. Just eat it. But if someone pipes up and says, hey, wait a second, I think that meat was sacrificed, then don't eat it. But watch what Paul does. This has been one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament for a long time. I'll try to help. He says, end of verse 28, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So look, look, you don't have to change your convictions. You don't have to feel guilty about this. Just change your behavior just this once. It's fine. It's not a big deal. I'm not asking you to change your mind about it. I'm not asking you to change your conscience about it. It doesn't have to be. Just change your conduct for the other person's sake because they're worth that. They're worth that to God. They should be worth that to you. He continues. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Apparently, four years ago, Paul had been in someone's house and he had eaten some meat that apparently had been sacrificed to an idol. No big whoop. Somebody in the church saw this and they were, the word is denounced here. It's blasphemed. Paul, four years later, was still being blasphemed for having had a pork chop at a house in Corinth. He's like, I gave thanks for it. God is sovereign. It's his. He made it out like pork. Why are you making a big deal about this? Just change your conduct. It's not that big of a deal, people. Move on. And so the great grand summary, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that leaves nothing out. I love that it's all this just mundane, monotonous minutia, minute by moment. Whatever you do, whether you're eating or drinking, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, that's an astonishing admonition. 
It requires an intentional, volitional gaze at your God. Now, you can't literally, viscerally see him, but an intentional practicing that he is near. An awareness that God is not the God who's not there. God is the God that is there. God is the God that does care. And so as I have this conversation, as I conduct that business dealing, as I do whatever job it is that I'm responsible for, doing so with an awareness that God is involved and that I am an expression of, a manifestation of, and a projection of his will on earth. So the God gets the glory, not me. God gets the recognition, the appreciation. The heavenly realms erupt when stay-at-home dads vacuum in such a way that is honoring. They're like, see, he's doing that because I've given him a house and he's recognizing the, the abundance and the provision. And God gets glory and the heavenly realms literally erupt and go, my God, you're the kind of God that loves a guy like that and he loves you back. This is unbelievable. And Gabriel goes full tambourine mode. It's, this is what happens. It's not just at Sandy Patty concerts. It's when men vacuumed. Are you hearing me? <laughs> not in my house because ours doesn't work. <laughs> Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And I love verse 32. Such a quick little pop Paul gives us. Give no offense in other words, don't give them an opportunity. Don't just create arbitrarily reasons for them to stumble. Don't try to trip them up. What value is that? Listen to the three different groups he says. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That little verse has been the stuff of denomination making and breaking. I won't get into it now, but I love this verse. In the mind of Paul, there are Gentiles in the church, there are Jews in the church, and that is the church, and there are still Jews. In the mind of Paul, the nation of Israel is still a thing. In other words, the church did not replace Israel, at least not in the mind of the apostle. Now, we'll have another sermon series about that at another time, but God will turn his attention and his focus and his gaze back to the dealings of Israel for a very troublesome time. It's gonna last about seven years. Paul seems to agree that the church, as many denominations will teach, has replaced Israel, not according to Paul. We can see this all throughout his epistles. The Jews, Israel, who are they? Don't know exactly, but they are still a thing in the mind of Paul. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Really? Have you seen Paul? He was bald-headed, bow-legged, unibrow, big-nosed, drippy pus coming out of his eyes. Is he, no, let me explain. This is a, kind of a weird translation. Paul was not a people-pleaser like I am. Paul was not just trying to get people to like him like I do. No, he's saying, I am contextualizing in any way that I can. I mean, people reviled Paul. Do you remember? They, they beat him with rods. They flogged him. They stoned him multiple times. He, he was hated and hissed at. The Jews reviled Paul a lot of times. He's not saying, I'm just trying to win friends. No, but he is saying, I'll do anything of these amoral issues so that I can be an instrument and a mouthpiece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that many may be saved. Paul seemed to understand of the ages, the age that is coming has come. And he got to be a herald, uh, an announcer, an ambassador, an emissary, and an agent of that age. I'll do whatever it takes. Paul would have gone and played disc golf if necessary. He'd have even played pickleball if it meant he could have a conversation with someone to give them the words of life. And then, as you all are aware, there is no chapter and verse markings in the original Greek. The chapters and verses were added just about 500 years ago. Really and truly, the first verse of chapter 11 is the culmination and the climax of this entire three-chapter set. Chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is it. This is our ecclesiology. This is how we do what we do. This is why we believe that it's so vitally important that the young people who are our church have access to, have availability to older people because it is those walking around examples and templates of the life of Jesus that our young people have access to. It's some of you who are, as the Proverbs say, crowned with silver that give me the examples and the, 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 the types and the patterns of how to live my life. What would, what would Larry do in a situation like this? Larry wouldn't a lot have gotten himself into a situation like this. I get that. But what would Larry do if he was? And I have all these wonderful patterns of people in this church. Paul says, this is what we do. Look at me, an apostle, as I look at Jesus. We look at the apostles. And we have different ministry leaders and, and pastors and deacons and elders and ministry teachers, all these things, so that there are people at every walk of life that have access to see what does it look like for someone indwelled by the Spirit, redeemed by the Son, loved by the Father, surrounded by the saints, equipped by the Word. What does it look like for them to live their life? I want to do that too. That's how we do. And so we do this with great purpose. We glorify God in the gray. Well, let me give three very quick implications for how I hope this text becomes portable to us and pertinent as we walk out of this place here in just a moment. Number one goes like this. Don't ask if it's allowed. Ask if it edifies. Do you see that right there in the text in verse 23? It may be permissible, but is it productive? Is it helpful? Is it construct? That's literally the word. Does it edify? This one's probably aimed more at you sparrow types out there, those of you that would like the Bible to give you a list of rules so that you could, you know, make it longer. At the same time, of course, it pertains to the eagle types because sometimes they tend to wonder how high they can soar and what's the most they can get away with before causing too much damage to self and to others. Well, what we've seen in this text is that what we need is to repent and to rethink to be those kinds of people who are from the coming age, living in the present world now. What marks our attitude and action is our redeemed inclination to do the good, do good for other people around us, above and beyond our own. That's what marks us. We're no longer solely and selfishly thinking of ourselves. What can we do to lift up and to raise up those around us? I've seen this played out beautifully in this church, in marriages, in parenting situations, with neighbors, other church members. It's incredible. Can I do X, Y, and Z? Well, sure, but the better question is, what is the best thing? What is the wise thing? Does it edify? Does it elevate? Does it equip all the people around me? Is this something that I really need to be doing? There's a great old preacher's saw about an old Irish evangelist who was traveling around the island of Ireland 
John Nicholson, and he was a fire and brimstone, spit, spit, spit kind of a preacher, and he was preaching on this very same passage. And he got to the end of it, and the man at the back raised his hand and said, Mr. Nicholson, am I allowed to smoke? Mr. Nicholson said instinctively, yes, you are, you filthy pig. Not really sure why I tell that story. It's just fun to say it. Yes, it's allowed, but is it what's best? Is it what is profitable? Is it constructive? Is it blessing everyone around you? Those are the kinds of things that in the middle of the day, in the mundane, in the minutia, we get to take captive every thought and align them with what God's purpose is in the world. Second point. It's a familiar one. I like to use this one every now and then. Practice his presence. Practice his presence. Much of our Christian mindset functionally boils down to this. Lord, please bless me enough and make me comfortable enough that I don't need to bother you anymore and you can leave me alone too. Now, we would never say it ever exactly like that, but much of our prayer life is just, Lord, just give me what I want and then I'll I'll call you when I need you. But he loves you so way far too much to ever, ever do that. He will never bless you above what goodness he himself brings by simple proximity and presence and nearness and love. He will never answer that prayer because he knows what is best for you and it's him. And so you and I get to invite him into all of our thinking, all of our feeling, all of our conversations. If you have ever gone through a season where you feel like God is distant or disinterested, then there's a very good chance that you've become the kind of child that never returns phone calls or texts or emails or DMs or anything else for one particular son who lives in Houston, just hypothetically saying, you don't want to be like that. Maintain lines of open communication. Instead, we are to be those people from the future, the age to come, which is already broken through. And we want to be the people who are literally indwelled with the person of the Holy Spirit, not merely equipped with God's rule book. We have him in our souls and lives. And so we live our lives with a prescient awareness of his presence. Now, this was articulated beautifully in the 17th century. An old French monk named Brother Lawrence wrote one of my favorite books. Mike and I talk about Brother Lawrence, Practice His Presence. It's the name of the book. It's a little bitty thing. You can read it in an afternoon. And he would talk about the sweet time that he would have as he would peel carrots. And as he would take a stroke of that carrot peeler, he would say, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And he would peel a potato and he would say, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And as he would dip the soup ladle into the soup and he would serve his brother monks, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And he would serve them and he would bring them bread. And every thought was, because you're present, you're, you're literally here. You are literally walking side by side me and you love this and you are worth this at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of his life, all of his colleagues said, He was the most joyous monk the monastery had ever had. And I will tell you, that little book literally changed my life as we used to have to do church setup every Sunday morning, sitting at all the chairs, running all the speaker wires, setting up the screen. We go, this is a pain, this is hard, but I would move this chair. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. You know what's crazy? The fulfillment and the joy insulated me from anything else that was attacking my soul. There was joy because practicing his presence is how Christians are supposed to live. Whether it's eating 
or drinking or vacuuming or playing or working or conversing. Lord Jesus is worth this. Do it with an intentional awareness of his presence and you will glorify God in the gray. Third point, others are the opportunity. What Paul seems to be saying, they were starting to turn in on one another and cannibalize the only church in Corinth at the time. So much was at stake. Others are not the opposition or the opponents, but that's the instinct on which much of our fallenness and flesh operate by default. All of them are in the way or they're against me, but no, we said it for several weeks now, our attitude must be different for this God redeemed us. We've been saying we, not me. We intentionally drive ourselves to community and the group more than merely the selfish pursuit of self. Do I have freedom in Christ? Absolutely. The immediate follow-on question should be, what am I doing with that to be a blessing to someone else? How can my freedom and redemption be a warmth to someone else if we just stopped for a week and applied that to nothing but our marriages? This place would take on a completely different depth. And I'll just tell you, I'm here for it. I outkicked my coverage and I uh, outdrove my headlights in the first service, so now I've got to say it again. I'm here for it. I can promise you that my wife would love to see that kind of attitude and mentality for me in my house. And so that's, that's my commitment before my church this week to exclusively and exhaustively put her good above my own. Pray for me. I'm bad at that. But that's the thing, to put her good, her desire, her fulfillment and joy above my own. And let's see if I make it to Sunday. I hope to see you on Sunday. Choose love over liberty. When in doubt, do the most loving thing. See, Paul brings all these big principles to small problems, and we get to do the same thing. It's amazing how much more palatable good doctrine and truth is when we do it with love and warmth and affection and attention. We, we have the opportunity as a church, as family members, as community members, as neighbors, to, to make sure people are understanding the truth, that they, are, that they hear how right we are about a thing. But what's better is to love them. Yes, and say true things, but what's better is to love them. When in doubt, do the most loving things. The Spirit is active here. And again, that's what I'm so grateful Other people aren't in the way, they are the way. And they're the primary place where we get to live out the truths of the gospel, where we edify and encourage and equip and elevate. Every person we encounter is an opportunity to be a demonstration and a projection of the coming kingdom ethic. We get to glorify God in the gray. We say it all the time, the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. So let me put it a slightly different way. Because of what the gospel is and does, little sparrows and the people that are like little sparrows are invited into the exhilarating freedom of the big picture and being freed from obsessing about rules all the time. And they simply get to be the will of God. And because of what the gospel is and does, soaring eagles and the people that are like those eagles are invited into the midst of the community and think and feel and love and live in such a way that actually encourages, edifies, elevates, and encourages everybody else, just like Jesus would. This is the freedom for which Christ set us free. He gets all the glory. We get the fulfillment and the joy. And through that experience and that example, we pray that God will do for others what he has done for us and that we more and more and more will bring increasingly 
those who will come to salvation in this house and that they will know our Jesus so that we get to glorify God in the grave. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to be gathered together in worship. We do pray that you would um, increasingly incline our hearts to one another. Perhaps most immediately, just in our family relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our sibling relationships, that we would rattle the, the halls of heaven because of how people who are called according to your name, who are found in Christ, who are indwelled by your spirit, would love one another for your sake, that you would receive the glory for that. That it would happen in this church where there have been uh, beefs or hurt feelings or angst, that you would remove that because of the power of the cross. And Father, we do also say that may our aesthetic and ethic of your kingdom manifest from here that others would see and that people who are far from you would come to know you and love you, that they would step out of death into life and that they would be a part of a community of joy that glorifies you even in the gray matters of everyday life. Father, we love you. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.